Well, have you ever gotten a gift you didn't like? I mean, it could be something simple. Sometimes it's not the color, the size, or the style that you would have chosen. Then other times it's a little more serious. It kind of moves into that cringe-worthy category. And you're thinking to yourself, what were they thinking? <laughs> and, and then there's the stuff that's really bad. It, it kind of moves into that inappropriate category. And we want to shout, what were they thinking? As we turn in our Bible today to Jonah chapter 4, what we're going to find is that God gives a gift. It's not an inappropriate gift. It's a great gift. It's a gift of grace. But as God gives his gift of grace to the people of Nineveh, those wicked pagan people that we've seen as we've been going through the book of Jonah, what it does is it makes Jonah mad. And it makes Jonah want to shout, I knew what you were thinking, God. He said, this is the very reason that I ran the other way. This is the reason I didn't go to Nineveh the first time, like you said. Because I knew, God, I knew that you were going to give this grace. As we look at verse 1 of Jonah chapter 4, it says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. The Hebrew word that is used here for anger literally means to burn and flare. He explodes. We talk about people getting hot under the collar. This is Jonah. He's angry at the gift that was given. You know, preachers typically are pleased when people respond to their preaching. But we're told here that it greatly displeased Jonah. Rather than rejoicing, Jonah resents the repentance of the Ninevites. Now, some have said, well, you know, Jonah's angry here because he's a prophet. And God told him to go to Nineveh and to preach this coming destruction, this judgment that was going to happen to the city. And Jonah did what God said, but now God is turning around and he's delivering them instead of destroying them. So Jonah's left holding the bag. Everybody's going to say, well, see, Jonah's a false prophet. The, the problem here is not that Jonah's afraid of being called a false prophet. We saw last time that another prophet by the name of Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. There God says, at one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to pull it down or to destroy it. But if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. And that's what's happening here. The real reason Jonah is mad is because of the Ninevites. These enemies of Israel are going to receive the gift of God's grace and mercy. God will not destroy them, but he will deliver them. Jonah says in verse 2, it says, And he prayed to the Lord. And he said, Please, Lord. Was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that thou art a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Wow. That's some pretty bad stuff, God. I mean, as you consider Jonah's complaint, it's ludicrous, isn't it? He's complaining about the perfect character of God. He lists these attributes of God. God, you're loving. You're merciful. 
Your compassion will save people from the calamity they deserve. These characteristics of God are something that is not new to this situation. We see it all throughout the scriptures. You know, Jonah's own people, the Jews, saw this. If you've ever read the story of the Jews, you know that when God delivered them from the nation of Egypt, after God took them out from slavery and he took them through the desert, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and there he was making uh, his covenant with the people. And he gave them the, the covenant of the law, and as Moses came down off the mountain, what did he find? The people had turned to a terrible time of sin. They had turned their back on God just a short time after he had delivered them. And, and Moses came down off the mountain and he found the people of Israel worshiping a pagan calf that they had just made. They were in this, this horrible time of idolatry and this, this orgy was going on and God could have wiped the people out at that very moment. But what did he do? God hit the reset button. He restored the people. And as he met with Moses again on the mountain, giving the law a second time, this is what Exodus 34 verses 5 through 7 tell us. As Moses is meeting there on the mountain, it says, And the Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. This is Moses talking to God. And then it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him, and he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sin. Friends, this is the character of God. It's not something he's just starting out to show to the Ninevites at this moment. This is something that God has shown all throughout time to all people. When we're told here in Jonah 4.2 that God is gracious, it's, it's linked with the Hebrew word heen, which means grace. This, this word grace expresses God's attitude toward those who have no claim on him since they are outside any covenant relationship. We're told that God is compassionate. And it, it's linked with the Hebrew word rahim. And this, this is a word that means the womb in which a baby is nurtured in. And it speaks of the love of a mother, her care, her compassion for her child. The word translated as love is the Hebrew word hesed. This, this is a word that it has such a deep meaning, our English translations can't even come close to it. We, we translate it as loyal love or kindness, but it goes so much deeper than that. It, it speaks of a covenant law that God keeps even when we break our side of the bargain. And as we look at what Jonah is complaining about here, this grace, compassion, this mercy that God is showing to the Ninevites, he's got a very short memory, doesn't he? Because if you were with us as we went through this whole series, you remember in chapter 2 that Jonah was one who was on the run from God. He was disobedient, he was in sin, he was going the wrong way, and as he went into uh, different areas of discipline, as God took him down, 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 and ultimately he was sinking down in the ocean, and he was wrapped around the weeds at the bottom, he was about to die, and this, this great fish came and swallowed Jonah. And there in the belly of the big fish, Jonah prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And what did he thank God for? Your mercy your grace, your compassion, delivering me when I didn't deserve it. And, and yet here, 
As this same mercy, grace, and compassion is applied to the Ninevites, Jonah doesn't like it. Jonah was deserving of death for his disobedience. But he says, God, when you show that to my enemies, that's just wrong. I want that gift returned. Are any of us here like Jonah? Do any of us have a selective memory? Have we forgotten our past? Have you ever wanted to, to whisper to somebody when you see, a, you know, a person whose character or sin you know about, you go, how in the world can he or she show up here at church? I mean, we all know about her past or his past. I mean, what's he doing showing his face around here? Friends, may I tell you something? We all have a past. We are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the perfect standard of God's glory. Why are any of us here today? How can any of us show our face here? We can show our face here because God turned his face toward us and he showed his great grace. And he said, even when you've been far from me, even when you've run from me, even with all the things you've done in your past, I have forgiven you. And I've given you my great grace. Next time you're tempted to talk about someone else's sin, remember your own past and how God in his great grace wiped the slate clean when we came to Jesus Christ. What the psalmist tells us about God and his grace is, he says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of God's great love for us. Grace, as we've seen and, and defined in previous sermons, is getting something that we don't deserve. In, in this case, it is being delivered instead of destroyed. And that is something we all deserve because we are all sinners. The Bible says there is a penalty of sin called death, eternal separation from God. But God came and he bridged that chasm of sin. Laying that cross across that chasm, giving us a bridge to walk across, to come to Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, we're told, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, a gift. The gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Another way to think of grace is to make an acronym that says God's riches at Christ's expense. 
It's a gift given to us. We didn't buy it. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And friends, we don't have a right to withhold it from anybody else who needs it. God has given it to us freely. And we have no right to withhold God's grace from anyone else. Jonah had prayed for God's grace in chapter 2 when he needed it. But when God gives it to those who need it as well, Jonah didn't want them to have it. So he prays another prayer here in verse 3. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life to me. You know, in Jonah chapter 2, he prayed for God to save his life, but now he prays, God, would you take my life? Let me die, God. Some of you have heard of Jonathan Owen. He was a great Puritan preacher of the past. And as Jonathan Owen was on his deathbed, as he was uh, very sick and preparing to die, his secretary was there with him, and, and Jonathan was dictating a letter to a friend. And he said to his secretary, he said, write these words. He said, I am yet in the land of the living. And then he said, no, 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 stop, change that. He said, change that to say I'm yet in the land of the dying, but I soon hope to be in the land of the living as he looked forward to that gift of eternal life in heaven. As we're reading the words of Jonah here, he was in the land of the dying. And he was watching hundreds of thousands of people enter into the land of the living. The last part of the chapter tells us there were more than 120,000 in Nineveh who didn't know their right hand from their left hand. Many believe this is speaking of children, those who have not yet come to an age of understanding. And so there were uh, upwards of 600,000 people in this city. And Jonah was watching an entire city turn to Christ. One of the greatest revivals in all of history. And instead of rejoicing, he resents it. All he could think about, sadly, was wanting to die because it irked him so much that his enemies were being saved. Does that describe anyone here? As as we look at Jonah's prayer to let him die, you know, it, it was something Jonah needed to do, but not the way he was asking. There was a bishop by the name of Stephen Neal, and he was fond of saying, we all have some dying to do. Jesus showed us how it should be done. We all have some dying to do. Jesus showed us how it should be done. You see, Jonah was one who needed to learn how to die to himself and his desires here. As we look at the next verse, we see that Jonah is fortunate, that God was all the things he had just complained about. Because if God was not compassionate, if God was not slow to anger... What if God said, you know, Jonah, I'm going to give you what you want. Do you remember in chapter 2, as, as he wanted to be thrown in the water and, and drowned, as he was starting to, at the last moment, he said, I don't want this. And God saved him. And now he's saying, God, just kill me. And God could have said, okay, Jonah, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to wipe you out right here. But instead of sending a lightning bolt... We see God's great grace again toward Jonah because in verse 4, God gently responds with a question. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now, as, as Jonah is asked that question, I want you to remember what's making Jonah angry. You see, Jonah is mad here because his enemies are being delivered. 
The root of the problem here is that things weren't being done the way Jonah wanted. Jonah said, look, God, I've got the plan. You, you wipe these people out and everything will be great. And God said, no, I've got a better plan. I'm going to save these people. And ultimately, the real problem was it boiled down to the fact that things weren't being done the way Jonah wanted. Are any of us here like Jonah? Do we get mad when things aren't done the way we want? Or according to our timeline? I mean, we're in this season right now of peace on earth and goodwill toward men, right? Have you been in any of the stores lately? <laughs> Is it peace on earth and goodwill toward men? I mean, we live in a society where people get so angry if they don't get things the way they want or when they want. I mean, stand in a long line with people and watch the grumbling and the complaining happen, right? Or what if that present they promised somebody that they saw in the store flyer and it's not on the shelf or I called the shipper and they said it can't get here on time and, and we just go through the roof. When, when you get bad service or inconvenience, what rises to the top? I was behind a person in line, and they had this button on, Jesus is the reason for the season. And they were letting the clerk have it. And I'm going, could you cover up your button? <laughs> when we get inconvenienced, what, what rises to the surface? What do other people see in us? Now, you know, sometimes what we're angry about is much bigger. And, and when God says to us, do, do you really have a good reason to be angry? We go, yeah, God, I do. You know, God, I'm mad. I'm, I'm mad at you, and I have a good reason. You know, one of the things that I see a lot this time of the season are families that are hurting. Getting together not only brings out tension when you're around people that you haven't seen in a long time, but sometimes there's a, a real and a deep hurt that comes because this may be a time where you've lost a loved one. And what happens is as the family is gathering together, it becomes a fresh reminder to people of that loved one who will not be with the family. And, and during this time, as that deep pain of loss is there, sometimes it turns into anger and we, we get angry at God. And it's a real hurt. Maybe you've seen the movie Courageous. In it, there was a father who lost his nine-year-old daughter to a drunk driver, if you remember that part of the movie. And the father was meeting with his pastor, and, and he was struggling with, with anger and, and all these emotions. And, and he said to the pastor, he said, you know, I've lost my daughter, and, and I don't like the way I feel, and what am I supposed to do? And the pastor said to him, he said, you have to choose whether you want to be angry for the time you didn't get to have with her or grateful for the time that you did have with her. Friends, will you be angry for the time that you didn't get to have with your loved one or grateful for the time that you did get to have? As you look at what you're struggling with, it may not be the loss of a loved one, but it may be some other loss. And what will you do? Will you be angry for what you've lost or grateful for what you did have? 
You know, others are struggling with the loss of a loved one, not to death, but sometimes it can seem even worse. I, I, I term it a living death because it may be a divorce, it may be a prodigal person in the family who's run away, and, and you're reminded all the time as well that they're not there, that they're far from you, that they've left you, and maybe they've moved on with their part of their life, and, and, and you're left holding all the hurt. And there's this ongoing grieving process as there are fresh reminders about that person when you hear about them, see a posting on Facebook, something else. And how do we react to that? You know, sometimes it's a situation where someone is doing things that are destructive to you or others, and, and you really have a righteous indignation. And you say, I'm, I'm angry about this. Is that okay? I mean, is it okay to be angry? Do you know the Bible actually commands us to be angry at times? Ephesians 4.26 tells us, be angry. But then it says, and yet do not sin. Be angry and yet do not sin. You see, there's a right and a wrong anger and a right and a wrong way to be angry. We're not to get angry because somebody cut us off in traffic and we have to slam on the brakes. What we're to be angry about are the things that break the heart of God. The things that break the heart of God. It grieved God that this city of hundreds of thousands of people were far from him and were headed for destruction. And he said, Jonah, I want you to, to feel my heartache for these people who are far from me. In, in those times where we get angry, it's not to be an explosive reaction. That's a, a different Greek word than the one found there in Ephesians 4, 26. That, that kind of explosive anger is thumos. It, it's, it explodes, and it leaves a mess and destruction everywhere. We're, we're not to have an explosive anger, or what people do sometimes is they go the other way, right? They stuff it down. And, and they swallow all that, that anger, and it, it becomes this, this hard kind of feeling in the, the gut of their stomach, and it becomes this, this root of bitterness. And as it grows and it takes over, it starts destroying everything and poisoning everything. And it often affects not just us, but everybody around us. Somebody wants to find resentment as drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Is that what you do? Do you say, that person's a rat, so I'm going to drink rat poison and, and watch this person die? Who is it that gets hurt? It's you and the others who are close to you. If that's what we're doing, we're, we're the ones who will be destroyed. What God wants us to do instead is to turn to him and say, God, I need your help. God, I'm hurting. I'm angry. I don't understand this. I'm struggling. And as we do that, as we give it to God, we are the ones who get released. Many of you have heard me share my story about growing up with my father. He was a very abusive man. At the age of 16, I was kicked out on the street because I was winning most of the fights protecting my mom and my five brothers and sisters. So at 16 years of age, I'm on the street because I had a father who, who used to beat us all up. And, and I was angry. I hated my father. Now, God used that difficult time in my life. That's when I became a believer in Jesus Christ. 
And as I came to faith and as I grew in my walk with him, three years later at the age of 19 when I was at the University of Texas in Austin working my way through school and, and growing in my walk with God, I came to a point where I realized, you know, if I'm going to call myself a Christian, one who's received God's gift of grace, one who didn't deserve it, that I need to give that same grace to my father. And I drove back to Dallas, and I found my father. My parents had divorced several years before that, after I was kicked out. And, and I found my dad, and I told him, I forgive you. Now, my dad's reaction to me was, well, that's great. I never did anything wrong to you. And, and I felt that anger suddenly welling up within me. I was driving down the road, down Central Expressway in Dallas, and I wanted to open the door and push my dad out at 70, right? But instead, what I said is, no. I'm going to give you my forgiveness. Whether you take it or not, doesn't matter. It's mine to give. And as soon as I realized I was doing that and I gave it to my father, you know what I found out? I was the one who got out of prison. All those years I thought he was, you know, sitting somewhere worrying about the fact that he had no relationship with me or the rest of the family. He didn't, he, it didn't bother him. But it was eating me up. It was this, this weight I was carrying. It was this pit in my stomach. It was this root of bitterness that was consuming me. And as soon as I killed that, that plan, as soon as I uprooted it by God's help and grace and threw it out, I was the one who got free. It's not easy, friends. I know that. I'm not offering you some glib answer. I struggled with it for three years to get to that point. But it's been a blessing to have the last 30 years not carrying that weight around in my life. You know, there's another time that I had to relearn that lesson. It was many years later. And, and this was when I was, uh, I was in Dallas again. And I was on my way to prison. Now, you can relax. I wasn't going to prison. I was taking somebody there. Because many of you know as well, I served as a police officer in Dallas for many years. And I had arrested this guy who had robbed a place. And we got in a car chase, and it was near downtown, and he bailed out on the banks of the Trinity River, and I chased him down. Turned around with a gun, I was able to knock it out of his hand. We get in this knockdown, dragout fight. Before it was over, we had literally rolled down the banks of the Trinity River. We both had bumps and bruises. We were both covered in mud and blood, his and mine. And I was able to arrest him. And as I dragged this guy all the way up the banks of the river and we get to the squad car and we didn't have cages in the car at that time, so you had to put him in the front seat and this guy, you know, was kicking and fighting, so we put leg restraints and strapped him to the floor so he's handcuffed and he's chained and he's sitting there and he, uh, you know, and thankfully the, the jail, loose stare at Justice Center is right there by downtown and so it wasn't a very far drive. And as I take this guy uh, to the jail, the way you get into it is you go down this, this, what they call a sally port entrance, and you go down this big ramp, and there's this, this large metal door that is waiting. And when you get there, uh, there's a camera, so they see the police car is there, and if they don't get, get your attention, you hit the siren or you push the intercom button, and then the door will you know, open and you drive in. And then as you park, you get them out, and you go through these several other doors to get in, into the jail safe check zones. And as I sat there with this guy, you know, tied down in my car, and I'm sitting there, and, we're, and, and, and I'm at the door, and the door won't open. 
And I, and I hit the siren, and I'm pushing the intercom, and it still won't open, and I'm sitting there. So I can finally pick up the mic and tell the dispatcher, would you tell him I'm at the door, open the door? You know, this guy's sitting there, I'm sitting here, and, and we're both fuming. And the door won't open. And the door won't open. And I'm hitting the horn, I'm pushing the button, I'm like, what's going on? They're working on it, they're trying. And, you know, other cars have pulled in behind me, I'm stuck, I can't go anywhere. And we're sitting there and sitting there. And normally, I try to share my faith with people I've arrested, but this guy, <laughs> he had tried to kill me, literally tried to take my gun. He, you know, I'm like, you know, I've never heard God audibly speak to me, but I'm kind of getting this impression, you know, Roger, I want you to talk to this guy. Hmm? <laughs> Open the door. And we're having this standoff. And, and God says, open your mouth. The door won't open. I'm sitting there. I'm fuming. Finally, I mean, 10 minutes have passed. I'm sitting there. And finally, I go, okay, God, I'll do it. And I have to confess to you, I looked a lot like the Jonah I described last time. Remember him? Standing on the street corner, gritted teeth, his Turner burn type of message, no love. And I said, okay, God, I'll give it to him. <laughs> so I turned to the guy and I said, hey, you know what? I almost killed you out there. And if I had killed you, where would you have gone? Heaven or hell? That's a great gospel presentation, isn't it? <laughs> and, and here's this guy, handcuffed, belted in the floor. And he looks over at me with this, the most seething hatred you could imagine. And he spits out these words at me. He said, I'd have gone to hell, cop. And then he followed up with a question for me. And what about you? He said, what if I had won and you had gotten killed? Where would you go? Now, I look over at him and I said, I'd go to heaven. And he sneered and kind of half laughed, and he said, yeah, because you're good, you're a cop. And at that moment, I kind of felt myself softening, and I, I just said, no, that's not why. I said, you know, I make mistakes too. I said, I do things that are wrong, maybe not like you, but I've, I've made mistakes. And the Bible tells me that my sins, as small as they may be in comparison to some of yours, are still sin. And God says there is a penalty of death for my sins and yours. And the only way that I'm going home to heaven is because I've turned to Jesus Christ who gave me his grace, who saved me and forgave me. And at that moment, the big door started creaking open. <laughs> and so we're sitting there and I drive in and I pull into a parking place and I put the car in park and I turn it off. And I turned to this guy who's still sitting there, and now he's kind of softened as well. So, oh, this hatred is just drained out of him, and he looks at me, and I'm looking at him, and I said, do you want to receive that gift? And he said, yeah, I do. And I led him in a, a prayer of repentance in the front seat of the car, handcuffed and belted to the floor. I kept one of my eyes open as I'm praying <laughs> with him. And he comes to faith in Christ, and I always carried a pocket Bible, and I took it out, and I put it in his pocket, because when he got searched in, whatever he had was his, and so I said, here's a Bible for you, and I said, look, 
I said, we're about to walk in this jail and I'm about to charge you with everything you did. Robbery, attempted capital murder, evading arrest. I went through the whole list. And I said, but I want you to know something. While there are still consequences here on earth that you will have to face and pay for because of your crimes, I want you to know that in the heavenly accounts you've received a full and complete pardon. At this moment, you have been set free. And I walked him into the jail. And six months later, as we sat in a courtroom, his lawyer brings this conversation up in the court, trying to use it as leverage. And he says, officer, would you uh, tell the court the conversation you had with my client? So I got to share the gospel to the judge, jury, and a whole room of people again. <laughs> Friends, how many of us are like Jonah? You know, I'm Jonah. There, there are times that... I want revenge for my enemies more than I want them to be rescued by God. There are times there are people that I don't want to have his gift of grace and redemption. I want revenge. But as those who have received his great grace, we have no right to withhold it. It's not our gift. It's God's. And he calls on us to share it even with those we don't like. Read Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 14, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Romans 12, 17 says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verses 20 through 21 tell us, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, as we read the story here, rather than overcoming evil with good, Jonah turns his back on God, and he walks out of the city. Look at verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city, and he sat down east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. Jonah goes out, and he, he builds a box seat overlooking the city. Jo Jonah knows the city's repented, but what he's hoping for is, you know, these are wicked people. They just gave lip service. They're, they're going to fall. This isn't going to last long. And when they turn away from God, boom. And I want to be here to see the fireworks. Now, instead of destroying the city, though, God tries to destroy Jonah's anger, as we see in verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. You know, earlier, Jonah was hot. Remember that? He was angry. He was extremely angry, it said. And now what God does is he shows grace again. And he says, let me deliver you from a little bit of the heat, Jonah. Jonah had made this flimsy stick shelter. The sun was beating through. And what God did was he grows this plant, big leafy plants. Many say it was a castor oil type of plant. And so what God does is he delivers him from his anger, from the, the heat, and, and it says Jonah's extremely happy about a plant. Now, when it says that God appointed the plant, this is the Hebrew word manah. We talked about this in chapter 1 in Jonah 1.17. The word you'll recall means to be reckoned or appointed. It spoke of assigning something to the place of a servant. 
There in 117, God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Here he appoints a plant in 4.6. In verse 4, 7, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 7, it says, But God appointed a worm, and God will appoint a scorching east wind. In chapter 4, verse 8. The four times this word is used in Jonah, it speaks of how God supernaturally exercises his control over some aspect of creation. And you know, as we read through the story, so often we get caught up in, in all the side things. We want to know all about the big fish. Was it a whale? Was it a fish? We'll go back to the first sermon in the series if you missed it and want to know. Or, or here we talk about the plant and people say, how in the world could this plant grow up in 24 hours? And God is the God who created everything. Friends, he spoke the world into creation. Can he not just create a plant overnight? You know, we get caught up on the side things and we miss the real miracle in the story, which is that hundreds of thousands of people in a city that were as wicked as they could be, who were far from God, turn to God and come to faith in him. If you're having a hard time with these parts of the stories, I want you just to think about the individual stories you know, of friends, of family members, maybe even your own story. And how you were far from God, hopeless. Nobody would have thought you would come to faith in him. And you came to faith in Christ. Or that family member or friend that you've been praying for or thinking about for so many years. And you hear they become a Christian and you go, what? Friends, that is the miracle. That is what we need to focus on. What's happening here is not about the plant. It's about how God, who is compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, is trying to turn Jonah from his anger and back to God. As we look through the scriptures, we see how God is always doing this. He's always reaching out and trying to bring one that is far from God back to himself. I love how John Ortberg puts this in a different passage. He says, redeeming is what God is into. He's the finder of directionally challenged sheep, the searcher of missing coins, the embracer of foolish prodigal children. His favorite department is lost and found. This is true of Jonah. It's true of the Ninevites, and it's true of us today. If you're here today and you're far from God, I want you to hear this. God wants you to come home. God loves you, and he wants you to come home. God's mercy, his grace, his compassion are available to you today if you will turn to God. And if you're here today saying, Roger, you don't know me. You don't know how bad I am, all the mess I've made in my life. No, I don't know your whole story, but I know Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were far from God, while we were running from him, while we were in rebellion, Christ died for us. That's the story of Jonah. That's the story of the whole of the scriptures. And as we look at the story here, God's mercy and grace are available to all who are involved he doesn't stop in pursuing Jonah. It says in verses 7 through 8, but God appointed a worm 
And when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came about that when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he begged with all his soul to die. Again with the dying, right? Death is better to me than life. You know, Jonah goes from lounging in the shade to longing for death. And just as he was starting to enjoy the plan and the creature comforts that come with it, God took it away. And we go, wow, that's mean. I thought you said God's this compassionate God. Friends, he is compassionate. To the point that sometimes he takes things away from us because they're blocking our view of him as this plant is over Jonah and he's getting comfortable again. God says, I've got to remove it so he can see me. And so he starts to see the depth of his own sin. You know, sometimes God has to do that in our own life as well, doesn't he? He has to remove things from us that we're focusing on or that are getting in the way of God. If you've placed a higher value on your personal comforts rather than people, God may adjust that view for you. Chuck Swindoll says, Jonah's value scale was so unbalanced his vision was so nearsighted, his life so small that an insignificant, soulless plant meant more to him than anything on earth. Does that describe anyone here? Are we focused more on our comforts, on our position, on our possessions, than we are on the lost people around us? Are there any plants in your life today that God needs to remove or maybe prune so that you have a better view of him and the things that he wants you to be doing? As God removes the plan here, Jonah reacts. And, and God says to him in verses 9 through 11, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, Jonah... You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? In verse 3, Jonah questioned God's right to deliver, and now he's questioning God's right to destroy. Isn't that funny? And, and so what God does is he says, Jonah, you need to learn a lesson. I am sovereign. Now, what's Jonah's reaction? Well, he stubbornly sticks to his sin, doesn't he? He adds to his anger here. Have you ever been there? Have you ever started to dig a hole and you kind of know, you know, that's not a good hole to be in. I'm going to fall in there and get hurt. But what do we do? Instead of filling the hole back in, turning from it, getting away, we just dig deeper and deeper and we get, you know, darker in the hole. Is that what you do? It's Jonah here. Now, the good news is no matter how deep we go, God's love goes even deeper. Again, you'll remember from chapter 2, as, as far as Jonah went down, God went even further to rescue Jonah, to rescue us. You know, as, as we read through this book of Jonah, what, it, what it, we've learned through Jonah is no matter how deep we go in our disobedience or even our despair, the pit of despair he's in here, God's love goes even deeper. 
God keeps asking Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? You know, if anybody in the story had a right to be angry, it was God. God had a right to be angry at the Ninevites who were wicked and had been turning from him. He had a right to be angry at his prodigal prophet, Jonah, who was time after time turning his back on God and running from him. And God has a right to be angry at me and you today because we too are disobedient. We too sin. We too run from God. But as we look at the story of Jonah, it's not about God and his anger. It's a story of God's great love for people like the lost people of Nineveh, the prodigal prophet, and for me and you today. As the book of Jonah comes to a close, it ends in a way that really seems to leave the story with no resolution. Because we don't have a response of Jonah here. But friends, I'll submit to you that that we know what Jonah's response is. Jonah decided to turn back to God. And I know that because we're reading the book of Jonah thousands of years later. God used his prodigal prophet to write the story and to include in it all of the mistakes that this man made. All the things that Jonah did, he records for us to essentially say, learn from me. The only question that remains today is what will you do with the great gift of grace that God has for you? The gift of grace is not something you can buy. It's not something you can earn. It's something that is freely given. In John 3.16, we're told, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Friends, this morning, God has a gift for you. It's a gift of grace. And what his gift is, is that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross, to pay the penalty of death that you owed for your sins and I owed for my sins. And what he says to you today is, you can't buy it, you can't earn it. All you have to do is receive it. For God so loved the world, not that he was so angry at the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That if you will receive Jesus Christ today, turning from your sins into him to be your savior, God says you will be saved. If you've never received God's great Christmas gift to you, I invite you to do so now. I want to close our time in prayer. There's nothing magic about the prayer that I'm about to lead you in. It's just your way of saying to God, today, God, I'm accepting your great gift of grace. I believe you're who you said you are. The one who came and took my place, dying on the cross to pay that penalty of death for my sin. And today, God, I'm accepting your gift. Thank you for making me a part of your family. If you'd like that great Christmas gift, I invite you to pray this prayer with me now. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I know I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I owe a penalty. A penalty of sin called death. I thank you, Jesus, that you came. And you took my place. Going to the cross to die for me. 
to close the account, to set me free from my sins. Today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sins and to you to be my Savior. I accept by faith your great gift. Thank you for making me a part of your family. Help me now, Lord, to live for you, to walk with you. I pray this in the name of my new and precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I'll be here at the front. There are prayer leaders coming to the front. Maybe a family member or friends you came with, turn to them and tell them, I just took that step of faith. We want to give you a Bible. We want to help you take the next steps as you grow in your walk with God. And for the rest of us who have received God's great gift in the past, God calls on us today to go out and share, to share that gift of grace with others, even those that we think may not deserve it. Jesus Christ has come, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's go into the world and share the good news. Have a Merry Christmas. If I don't see you Christmas Eve, you're dismissed. <laughs>